about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. For the first reading, you need to turn to page 538 and we'll be reading Psalm 16. So that is Psalm 16 on page 538. Keep me safe, O Lord, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who will increase, or those who will increase who run after other gods, I will not pour out their liberations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Hi, I'm Lish. I'm going to read Acts chapter 2 for us, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, 
This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths paths of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I want you to think for a minute about what you reckon grows a church. 
what do you reckon grows a church? I think the key is fairy lights, as you can see. Uplighting, I'm a fan of uplighting. I think it makes it inviting. You know, a good welcoming team really helps grow a church as people feel connected and welcomed each Sunday. What do you think grows a church? Obviously having a rocking band, a magnificent supper, it's beautiful flowers on the coffee table helps, you know, proper plunger coffee, freshly ground in this part of the world. If you're going to grow your church, you're going to have to get serious about your coffee. Maybe we need a bigger space. You know the theory that once a church feels 80% full, people don't want to invite people because it already feels... Maybe we need a bigger space. Let's knock this down and, and go large. Let's buy a warehouse in somewhere. Fill it. What do you think grows a church? Is it, is it prayer? Is it single-hearted love for neighbours? What do you think grows a church? Tonight... Uh, As we look through Acts chapter 2, we're looking at a massive church growth. Did you hear the last verse of Acts chapter 2? It'd be good to have it open. 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's a pretty good day's work. As we look at Acts chapter 2, the first sermon given by someone apart from Jesus, the first sermon recorded in the New Testament from someone other than Jesus, we're going to come face to face with this question. What do you think grows a church? Uh, If you've rocked along tonight for the first time to Church in the Graveyard, welcome. Hi, I'm Roger. Um, We've been looking at this uh, book of Acts for a couple of weeks and the the kind of contents verse of Acts is Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It's kind of like throwing a rock in a pool and watching the concentric circles roll out. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, if you have a look at it, Jesus says to his disciples before he returns to heaven, Wait in Jerusalem and power will come to you and you will be my witnesses. Witnesses is a key idea. Here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. The gospel will be rolling out through the book of Acts into these geographical and kind of people group areas. And we spent last week uh, looking at the, the idea of witnesses that you had to be, if you were going to replace Judas, the one who was the betrayer of Jesus, the second half of chapter 1, deals with his replacement. And you had to be, what does it say at the end there? 21, 22 of chapter 1, you had to have been among the people who saw Jesus go in and out, heard his teaching, as well as be a witness with us, Peter says, the other 11, a witness with us of his resurrection. The apostles are witnesses to Jesus who has defeated death. And it's witness to that event that we're going to look at tonight. Uh, The 120 people who were there at the end of chapter 1 as uh, Matthias was chosen to replace Judas, uh, they're the people, I think, it says, when they were all together in one place. About 120, not dissimilar to us tonight. Imagine if we were all the Christians in the world all of Jewish background. See, the, the, the Feast of Pentecost is a time when people came from all over the Jewish known world to celebrate the, the harvest festival. It's a time of joy. It's kind of the funnest festival. Passover is good and solemn, but this is joyful, and people had come from everywhere. Now, the chapter that we're looking at uh, breaks down, I think, into four obvious sections. Action, 
what actually happens in verses 1 to 4, two responses in verses 5 to 13, uh, a long explanation down to the end of uh, verse 36, and room for a response. Action, responses, explanation, and another response. And we'll look at it that way. So have a look with me at the action of the chapter in the first couple of verses. When they were together in one place, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Uh, This is not a zephyr. This is not a breeze. This is the sort of wind that you think is going to blow off the roof. Not just wind, but the other sign of God's presence. Now, we've just finished a sermon series on Exodus not long ago, so you're well primed for this. What, what reminds you, what are the features of God's presence among his people, Israel? Wind, that is his breath, and fire. Verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, you've just got to... I wasn't there, so I'm not quite sure. This is all we have. But can you imagine that for a moment? There's crazy wind and tongues of fire on each of your heads. What's with that? Fire has been a sign of the presence of God. When Moses was spoken to by God at the burning bush, God appeared as fire. As he led his people out of Egypt and through the desert for 40 years, it was a pillar of fire by night that they followed. Fire has been a symbol of both the purifying and judging presence of God with his people. And that wind, his, his spirit, his breath, the Hebrew word's the same, spirit, wind, breath, is a sign of his presence with his people. So this is saying that God is there in wind and fire and on each person. See, in the Old Testament, in the old way, One person was representative for the people. The Spirit would fill a prophet, Moses, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and they would speak the words of the Lord to the people. But here, on each person. What happens when these people are filled with the Spirit, verse 4 tells us, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Sidebar, 1 Corinthians talks about speaking in tongues. This is different. 1 Corinthians 14 is speaking about tongues that you don't know or not are real languages, but this is talking about kind of dialects, actual languages and versions of speech that people who are there can understand. It makes sense uh, in the responses. When God speaks, when God is present by his spirit here in the tongues of fire and the wind and the speaking of these other languages... There are two obvious responses, verses 5 to 13. Two obvious responses. Fear, amazement and perplexion on one hand and ridicule on the other. It's been a pretty standard response to Jesus while he's been on earth. Amazement and not quite understanding what's going on on one hand and ridicule on the other. Have a look with me. Now, there were, verse 5, staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language, in his own dialect. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these guys from the backwaters of Galilee, dodgy fishermen? 
not learned language rhetoricians, no. Then how is it that each of us hears them speaking in his own native language? And then you get the great list. Very well read, by the way. Good job. Uh, one of those Bible readings you might not want to score. Essentially, that list of countries and places is just going around the map around Jerusalem and naming every part of the known world where there were Jewish people living. People from everywhere who were Jews, who knew the Old Testament, who followed the law, who were waiting for the Messiah that was promised. Both Jews, verse 11, and converts to Judaism. They heard the Galilean disciples, the witnesses who'd seen the risen Jesus, declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues. And amazed and perplexed, they said, what does this mean? Bit of a leading question, isn't it? But, however, verse 13, some of them made fun and said, they've had too much wine. If you've heard drunk people, like I live right on Erskineville Road, just down the road from the Imperial and opposite the Echo, just last night I heard some people and they might have been speaking in tongues, but no, they just had too much something. So we've had the action and the response. What's the explanation? And really, this is the guts of it. What is it that happens here? What is going on when the Spirit of God is at work? Well, on one hand, Peter says, you should have seen this coming, people of Israel. You should have seen this coming. He spends the first uh, few verses saying that uh, this was promised in the book of Joel, 15 to 21, talks about this was promised by one of God's promise, that the Spirit would come not just to one, but to everyone. Can you see the list of people on whom the Spirit is going to come according to Joel? I will pour out my Spirit, verse 17, on all people. Sons and daughters, young men, old men, servants, everyone. The new way of God dealing with his people isn't through just one person having the Spirit and speaking to the people, but each one has the Spirit of God. This is the new way that comes because of Jesus, and this has always been God's plan. What happens when these people have the Spirit? Part of Peter's explanation as he points to Joel is that things come to a head. The wonders and signs lead to a point where, verse 21, people are called to cry out to the Lord for salvation. When God appears to his people, it's both amazing and perplexing, but it's a time of, well, where do you stand? A time of recognition that God's people haven't lived according to their calling. And so it's a time to cry out to be saved. But Peter's explanation isn't just, hey, you should have expected this, although that's how it starts. He also talks about what happens when the Spirit comes. Now, you've got to ask yourself, what do you think the Holy Spirit does? What do you think the role of the Holy Spirit is in the church, in the life of a believer? I think it's perfectly enacted here because as Peter speaks, what he does is he points people to Jesus. The role of the Spirit is to draw people's attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. See what Peter does? Verse 22, Peter starts by making Jesus the subject of what he says. Verse 22, man of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you. Now, I don't know what sort of work you do at the moment. 
Uh, I used to be a teacher, and I hated those years when you had to go through the accreditation process. You had to prove that your school was up to the job of teaching what was actually in the curriculum. If you've got another type of job, you have to go through your own accreditation, do your exams, pass the test, do your ongoing professional development. Jesus' life, his, the way Peter puts it, miracles, signs and wonders, were his accreditation that he really was who Peter is claiming that he's going to be. I'm going to take you to the end, verse 36. God has made Jesus both Lord, that is God, and Christ, the Messiah, the King who saves. Jesus was accredited to you, verse 22, by his signs and wonders. Jesus is the topic of Peter's speech as Peter is filled by the Spirit. He speaks about Jesus. Jesus was, firstly, accredited to you, which God did. Verse 23, Jesus' accreditation is, in, is followed by Jesus being handed over and killed. As the Spirit fills Peter, he speaks about Jesus' life and death. Note the personal touch in verse 23. This is not a theoretical statement. Peter says, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. I think there's finger pointing going on here. Peter speaks of Jesus, his accreditation, his being handed over and killed, but also what God did, verse 24. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. For it's impossible for death to keep its hold on the Lord, on the Christ. Accredited, handed over and killed, raised by God. And as Peter stands, he's standing with the 11. Just look back up in verse 14. Peter stands, stood up with the 11. It's, it's a bit like 12 angry fishermen. You know, 12 apostles standing with Peter. But Peter's speaking on their behalf. And he says, verse 32... God has raised this Jesus to life and we are witnesses to the fact. It's not just me, Peter, the oddball, standing out from all the others, how that might have been the case when we were with Jesus, but no, we stand together now declaring what God has done. Notice how God is the subject. Verse 24, verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. Now, the verses in between 25 and 32, I'm going to skip gently over, except to say uh, that David saw this coming. David saw this coming. David knew that there was going to be a Messiah who would not see decay. David knew it, and because David knew it, he knew that something greater was coming. He died. He was waiting for the one whose body wouldn't see decay. And so Peter reaches his kind of conclusion in verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life. And then we've got this great moment in verse 33, easy to remember, because it's about the Trinity, two threes. Not that there are six people in the Trinity, but three. Just have a look at the way the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are talked about in verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, speaking about the Father, Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And you see what's going on there? 
we see what God is doing in the persons of Father, Son, Jesus, and Spirit. Exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus has received from the Father. Jesus takes from the Father what he's given, and that is the Holy Spirit. And he pours out the Holy Spirit, and the result is what the people gathered now see and hear. See the fire, hear the wind, the presence of God himself in the church. When God is at work, You can see what he does. One of the troubles with the Holy Spirit, not that there's anything wrong with the Holy Spirit, one of the troubles with the Holy Spirit is that you can't see him. Remember in John 4, when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman about where to worship, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You can't see him, but you can see what he does. You can see the wind moving the, the leaves on the tree. It's like magic. Because you can't see what's doing it. The Holy Spirit, we can't see him, but we can see what he does. And in this case, he fills Peter to speak of the resurrected Lord Jesus. See, everyone who was there knew that Jesus lived and knew that Jesus died. But the one thing that people weren't used to seeing is someone who had come back to life. We are witnesses of the fact that God raised Jesus to life. What are you going to do in response to that? I talked about finger pointing before. Listen to this. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This is a sermon about what God has done. Be very certain about what God has done, Peter says. God has made his son Jesus, Lord, that is ruler, and Christ, a king who saves. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, what shall we do? What do you do when you realise you were complicit in murdering the Son of God? That you were part of the crowd who brayed for his death? Crucified. Crucified. That you were part of the mob who called for Barabbas, the terrorist, rather than Jesus to be released. You crucified the Lord of life. This is personal. God sent his own son into the world and his people, his very own, who of all the people in the world should have recognised him, treated him as a criminal. You crucified the Lord and Christ, Peter says to Israel gathered. And they realise what they've done. What will we do? The answer is there in verse 38. Peter replied, Repent. Be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's 
astonishing, isn't it, that God extends forgiveness to those who murdered his son. Have you thought about the willingness of God to forgive wrongs done against him? If God can forgive those who murdered his son, how will he not forgive us? Repent means to turn back to God. Because this is personal, the word repent has this sense of having turned your back on someone, to turn back towards them, to plea for forgiveness and restoration of relationship. Repent and be baptised. This is a new thing for the people of God. For Israel, baptism wasn't really part and part of their, their religious ceremonies. Circumcision, obedience to the law, sacrifice, festivals, they were all things that Israel were used to, but baptism is a new sign, a new symbol of being washed personally, of the new life that comes by being united by faith with the one who's defeated death. Repent, be baptised and receive the Holy Spirit, a new life because of Jesus, this gift. This is the heart of Christianity, isn't it? That this is a gift from God, having done the most offensive thing by turning our backs on the God who made us, in Israel's case, by murdering Jesus, God is willing to not only forgive, but to offer himself, the gift of the Holy Spirit, to those who turn back to him, who repent. This promise, verse 39, and this is where you and I come in. Verse 39, this promise is for you and your children. Peter says to Israel, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. Can you feel the urging? Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Uh, Two things to say as we finish. Firstly, if you've not repented, if you've not said to God, I'm sorry for living in your world and ignoring you, if you've not ever said to God, I'm sorry that I haven't lived the way you called me to live as one of your creatures, I'm sorry for turning my back on you, please forgive me, there is no better time than tonight. Peter's words of what has been done, that God's son has been given as a gift, For the forgiveness of sins is open to all who are far off from Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That's us here tonight. You could be a person who walked into church tonight, an enemy of God, and can walk out forgiven and with the Holy Spirit of God in you. This is a gift. This is the gospel. This is the good news that's going to be announced in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even Newtown, the ends of the earth. The first thing to say is that tonight's the night for you. Uh, If you've not repented before, consider this gift. I urge you, I beg you, consider Jesus and turn back to him in faith. Secondly, if you're a person who knows Jesus, 
I want you to think again about what you think grows a church. Now, we're going to spend lots of weeks talking about being sent and empowered for mission and the work of the church and what's going to happen. And it will be easy now to talk about you witnessing to your friends at work, even drinking instant coffee for them. But before we get to that, can I just get you to consider that the heart of what grows a church, what grows the church, is Jesus. Jesus grows the church. From the very beginning of the book of Acts, Luke writes, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The book of Acts is a story of Jesus' action, the resurrected and exalted Jesus in action in his church by the power of the Spirit whom he pours out. See, Jesus is the one who grows his church. I want to finish by reading with you, or reading for you, some words from Isaiah 9. If you want to look on with me, feel free. It's page 683. This is one of those Christmas readings that we have in the Lessons and Carols. It's always going to be tempting for us to think that our systems and our attitude and our work and our preaching are the things that grow a church. Those things are important. But the one thing that changes a person's heart, that changes a person's life, is the Lord Jesus. Hear these words from Isaiah chapter 9. There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in future, he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged their nation, increased their joy, and they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. What will accomplish this? Isaiah 9 verse 7. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the deep love that you've shown your creatures in sending your Son to be crucified for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you that you raised him from death, that death no longer has power over him. And we thank you for those who witnessed the fact. We thank you that 
exalted to your right hand, the Lord Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit, that he has enabled people to point back to what you have done, that he has given life where there was death, that he has given forgiveness where there was only right wrath. Father, we thank you that you have shone a light in our darkness. Father, we turn to you in faith and thank you for your openness in welcoming back those who turn to you in faith. And we praise you for the life that is found in Jesus and we ask, Lord, that you would make us individuals and a church that have our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that it is he who we preach, that it is he who we follow, that it is he who we trust. Shape us, Lord, that we would know you by knowing your Son in the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.